I kind of, uh, I, I did my time there and I had other things that I wanted to do, such as, you know, play jazz and, you know, play fusion music and, and, um, and the business, you know, was, was, was getting weird uh, with George and, and myself. So, uh, I remember Mudbone, you know, talking to him, you know, we're on the tour bus and I'm sitting next to him and, you know, I'm talk, talking to him about, talking to him about, you know, me meeting George Duke and, you know, Stanley Clark and Chick Career and, you know, how great these guys are. And he looked at me square in the eye and says, man, if that's what you want to do, why don't you just go out and do that, man? It's like, you got the talent for it. Just go do it. You know, and it's like nothing worth a try, then try. You know, you got to try it and see. He said, well, the worst thing can happen is like, you know, you could, you know, failing. But even then, you still get up and dust yourself off and just keep keep it moving. You got the talent. I looked at him. I'm like, I looked at him and I said, you know, thought to myself, he's right. So, well, plus, plus, I mean, things had slowed down for the Funk Mob by then. I mean, there wasn't like when you came in, they were doing so many things, and by the mid '80s, it kind of just went down almost a trickle compared to that. So, I'm sure you weren't nearly as busy either with that. Well, that was because George was suing Warner Brothers. Um, and uh, he had to take a year off to get all the legal fares, you know, get that out of the way. And that's when Gary Scheider uh, was taking over the thing. And, uh, and people felt like, you know, if they didn't see, if they didn't see George, they weren't going to you know, buy any tickets. Uh, it was the same band, same music. Shida was all always there anyway, and he did most of the singing anyway. So, but people felt like if George, if they didn't see George, just see him, then the show wasn't nothing or something, you know, which was like untrue. What, what was your most unforgettable memory from the road during that period working with them? Well, I, I, you know, uh, there's some things I got to keep to myself because uh, <laughs> you guys were a bunch of, we were a bunch of nuts, you know. Um, I'm trying to think what could I tell about anybody getting in trouble. Um, now, I remember one time, you know, Sir Knows, Larry Hextall. They used to sit and play, you know, card games on the bus just to pass the time. And they would gamble, you know. And, you know, it's Bob Bishop, the sound guy, Skeet, uh, was playing. Macy was playing sometimes. Either Macy was playing or he was, you know, sometimes watching over the game. Then there was Cernos and uh, somebody else, maybe maybe Greg Boyer or something. And they sit, you know, around this table and they, you know, playing the game. Yeah, uh, uh, Larry Hextall was kind of, you know, like weird about his bunk area. And, you know, he's very militant, you know, kind of guy where, you know, when he make up his bunk, you know, you could bounce, I mean, really, you could bounce a quarter off that thing. You know, it was so well made and uh, you would have, you know, his lights, you know, like the lights weren't like normal lights. You would put like, you know, the, like a, a piece of gel up. Uh, like the, from the lighting trust, you know, give his bunker, you know, like a, like a, you know, like a look, a certain look about it, you know, and then he would change the, you know, from red to purple to purple to green or whatever color, you know, he decided he felt like that night. And after the card game, or when Larry had enough of playing cards, he went back to his bunk and found out his bunk was a shambles. Somebody ripped up his ripped up his bunk and took the uh, took the blanket <laughs> and uh <laughs> and and he looked down you know and, and when he gets mad you can't understand him sort of you know because he just you know he gets irate you know like you just couldn't you just couldn't make out anything he was saying the only thing we made out was his blanket somebody got his blanket and he went back to the bunk, bunk area, and as he was going back and forth, he looked down the bottom bunk, and he see a corner 
or a blanket hanging out, and he went to tug on it, pull it, and and uh, the trumpet player Larry Hatcher was in that bottom bunk, and he, you can hear him rolling around, hitting hitting the walls and stuff as he rolling around, and he thought Larry he thought Larry Hextall was playing around with him, and Larry when he gets mad, he's, he's got the strength of an ape, you know. He pulled him, you know. He had the blanket like this, you know, up in the air. And there's he's face to face with Larry Hatcher, who's holding on to the blanket, and 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 now he's being accused of he was the one that stole the blanket. And um, I'm laying in my bunk, and now the bus is swerving back and forth, and the door to the bunk area is open and closing, and every time the door opened, I see a new position of somebody getting beat up. <laughs> Like stop motion. <laughs> right, right. The door opened and there's there's Larry uh, Sir Nose on top of Larry the trumpet player. He was beating him. And then the door closes and the door opens again and there's the trumpet player on top of uh, Sir Nose and he's trying to hold him down because he knew he couldn't fight him. So he's trying to hold him down. The door closed again to open up and there's another position. Now they're on the floor you rolling around. So I get out, out of my bunk. I'm like, what the heck is going on up there? Well, the reason why the bus was you know, going back and forth because the, the, the Joe, the driver's name was Joe something. Uh, he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he's trying to see what's going on. And he's trying to keep his eyes on the road and look back, you know, and, you know, and he don't know whether to stop the bus or not. So he stopped, you know, uh, and, uh, and we all broke up the fight. And um, uh, uh, the trumpet player, you know, you know, like ran off as we figured it out. What happened was the guy, the wardrobe guy, this guy named Mark something. can't think of his last name either. So long ago. He came on the bus. And when he, we noticed when he walked off the bus, because he was on the second bus, we were on the mothership bus. And when he walked off, he walked off with a blanket. So he had to be the one that, that took the blanket. Now, all the blankets looked the same. It was the same blanket. So we don't know how Nose figured out, like, or he figured that, that the blanket that he saw was his when all the blankets looked the same. Hmm. So now the trumpet player runs off. He gets mad. He locks the door. And, and Maceo is standing in front of the door. Come on, Larry. You know, you know, everything's squared, you know, like, you know, let, you know, Sir knows is, you know, you know, he's sorry, he wants to apologize, but the trumpet player wouldn't open the door. And now it's taking off Maceo. Maceo's saying a few words. Man, it was crazy, man. I, I remember I, again, I had to run to the bathroom and just throw up from laughing. I mean, when I get, when I laugh too hard, I start throwing up. <laughs> and, and it was just it was just really funny. That's did they hold did they hold grudges or just let bygones be bygones? Uh, no, they let bygones be, be, be bygones. But you know, somebody was very sore. The trouble player was very sore. You know, when it, when it happened, when that happened. But those guys, I mean, I remember uh, another incident where we were on a, the Atomic Dog tour, and um, George would invite these girls to come up at the end of the song. To do some dancing with it, but he invite like a few girls up, and then he invite the singers to come down, you know, to, to dance with him. And George is walking around screaming, you know, the dog catcher, do the dog catcher, they do the dog catcher, blah 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 blah. blah. And and um, he picked out this one. He always picked out this one girl to dance with, and he would pick her up and throw her on the ground. And he's like with the microphone. He's over top of her now. He's got his crotch in her face. And he's, you know, humping, you know, you know, doing that stuff. And and we're going like, man, one of these days, George going to get killed because we know it's somebody's girlfriend up on stage. And he's up there humping on the face. And 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 I'm quite sure, you know, like if the guy don't come up and try to do something, then he probably do something to the girl later on, you know, for allowing that to happen. And uh, one day he picked this one girl. He's dancing with it. She's kind of tall. 
she's about his height or maybe even taller. And he's, you know, he kind of liked it. She's blonde, nice. And he tried to pick her up. She kind of shifted her weight and he couldn't pick her up, so he dropped her. She picked him up. Picked him up by the, had him by the belt buckle, had him by the collar, and went back and ran across the stage and tossed him. George? George? George. And he goes sliding across the floor and he went under Bernie's keyboards. He hit something under Bernie's keyboards. You hear a thunk. And George had the microphone like this on him. And all of a sudden you hear, oh, my back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, make my story short because I can't finish that that story after what, what what happened after that. But some band member, one of the band members took took her back to the hotel and come to find out she was a transformer. She was a he. Oh wow. Right, so so then it it, it all made sense how she had the strength to pick up George, because George was you know, he was tall and he had some weight to her, you know. <laughs> wow. Was, man, we saw kind of crazy stuff. Like one night, uh Felipe Wynn, <laughs> when he first joined the band, you know, he's coming out of a whole nother classic thing. You know, he's coming out of the tucks and tails of the spinners. And, um, you know, here we are, we're dressed in army fatigues. And this is on the Uncle Jam Wants You Tour. And, um, you know, he would come out, you know, prance around in his black tux. And he would aim his cane at one of the light, uh, one of the pods, and it didn't go off. So he walks around some more. He's looking off to the side of the stage to look at the pyro guy. Everybody's looking up at the mothership because they thought they saw something wrong with it. And because one night the mothership did, it came down on fire one time. One of the gels had caught fire. And back then there was real lights, but no LED lights that they use now. And um, so he's looking up, he's looking at this thing. Guy wasn't paying attention. And um, uh, uh, Felipe is prancing on some more. He aimed at the right one and it didn't go off. So uh, uh, Felipe got on the microphone and called the guy racist. And that got the guy's attention. He's like, what, did I hear that right? You know, like, what did he say? And one of the other guys in the crew told him what he said. And it kind of like, it kind of broke his heart a little bit because it was a black band that had a white road crew. And if you mess with them, you had to mess with us. If you, had to, if you mess with us, you got to mess with them. We had each other's backs, you know. And he's like, how dare he call me a racist? What the, you know. And, and, and at that time, we had a guy who was like, he went to Vietnam. He was doing, you know, the uh, pyro. And he was already known not that he was the guy not to mess with. Because if he didn't like you, all of a sudden, late night at the end of the tour, you find your doors get blown off the hinges. <laughs> you know, as he's trying to get back at you, you know. And um, we just knew he was going to get back at Felipe. And months went by. Nothing happened. And we're waiting. We were like, okay, well, you know, nothing happened this month. Maybe next month or somewhere in this month. Nothing happened. Like three months later, that you know, we're about to come to a close at one of those tours. Felipe comes out. He's got a, a he's wearing a baby blue tuck with tails. And He's prancing around on knee deep. He aimed the pyro, uh, aimed at this pyro on the left. Or no, he aimed it at the right this time. And it didn't go off. He looked at the guy, and the guy's just standing there looking at him, smiling. You know, like nod his head like this. And, you know, uh, Felipe is like, you know, come on, man, come on. You know, so he walks around some more, and he aimed his, his cane at the pyro on the left. The one on the right went up. And also you hear this loud explosion. And 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 the guy 
you know, the guy's like, you know, so professional about how to mix stuff. He would blow tiles out of the ceiling at some of these places. But this time he loaded it up with all this smoke, you know, where the whole stage got so smoky. I couldn't see who, I couldn't even see the drums in front of me almost. I saw the snare drum, but I couldn't see the rock times. I definitely couldn't see ski. Nobody could see each other. The smoke is clearing up. And then all of a sudden, you remember that guy named the actor named Joe E. Brown from the 60s or the 50s? He maybe. made a. If I saw him, maybe. He's not my name. He's the thin guy who wore glasses. And he made uh, he made a, a career by the way he yells. You know, something happened. He had a crescendo. And then it gets louder and louder and louder. Well, that's what we heard. We heard this, this, this yell from faint. And then it got louder and louder as the smoke cleared. We could see Felipe running across the stage and he's on fire. Little fire coming out of his the tails of his tuck. And, you know, so I got the best seat in the house. I'm back there looking at him, looking at him going by. And then I look at Skeet. Skeet look at me, we shrugging our shoulders. And then all of a sudden you hit a yell again. And then he's coming back across the stage. Now he's got two guys after him, but they're laughing. And they couldn't catch it because they were laughing so hard. And then he disappeared off to the right side of the stage. I look at Skeet, Skeet, Skeet again. He's got the concerned look like, what the, what's going on? You know, like, because we thought he was dead. We thought when the smoke clears, we were just going to see a body on stage. And then all of a sudden, for the third time, he runs across and he's got two guys. And now he's got two other guys meeting him as he's running towards uh, 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 right to left, and it catches him, and they picked him up and threw him on the floor and started rolling him on the floor, on the carpet. And we it wasn't funny then, but then, after it was all said and done, you know, I'm playing like, oh, well, at least he's alive, you know, I'm thinking. <laughs> and, and, and I looked at Skeet, and we just looked at each other, Skeet started laughing. And then I started laughing, and because and, uh, it looked like they were scratching a record on stage, you know, like, rick, 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 you know, and uh, uh, it was just. It how, was, how was the crowd reacting? Could you tell? They were surprised from little I remember, and uh, they didn't know whether it was an act or not. Yeah. You know, but you're convinced it was retaliation. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. But, but he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for that, you know, for what he had said earlier. And what we was, all it. I was going to say, what was Felipe, Felipe's personality like in general? Well, you know, I got to know him, you know, and, and um, uh, that song Sadie was about, it was truly about his mother. You know, he couldn't, you know, he would run off stage before he could finish it mm -hmm. when we played it. And he was kind of a, you know, one of those kind of fathers. He had two sons uh, who I never met. Um, he would call them at a certain time of night, to call them, you know, to wish them good night and, and before they went to bed. He was that kind of guy. And then I, I learned that, you know, the guy, you know, he had a, a heart of uh, an angel uh, that we as a band didn't know. Because everybody was too busy hating him because he was just different, you know. Um, George knew it, you know, because George knew him. Bootsy knew it because Bootsy knew him. But the band at that time didn't know him. They didn't know what kind of guy he was. And then they, get, they didn't even give him, they didn't give him the time mm. to, you know, to get to know him. Now, I got to know him because right after Funkadelic, I was working with Shoot Hill Records. I was the in-house uh, in uh, drummer for Shoot Hill at one time. I wanted to ask you about that because there's some confusion, I think, whether it was Keith LeBlanc or you or... No, Keith was there before I got there. Okay. Yeah, because we... Uh, uh, there were some nights where the Shoot Hill gang opened for us. And that's how I got to know Doug Wimbish and, and uh, Skip and, and Keith and all those guys from Connecticut. And um, 
I don't know what happened between Keith and, and the organization. But Doug brought me in. Doug Wimbish was the one that brought me into that whole thing. And uh, and that was a trip because, you know, like going from being with Fungadelic right into that, it was a whole other different animal and seeing how they work where, you know, Grandmaster Flash could bring in records and say, learn this. And we're learning it, you know, at that time, the first time I recorded with them, for them, uh, seeing how they work and then going like, why am I learning this stuff? We should be doing, you know, new stuff, you know, but they were, they were just either sample or have their band duplicate, you know, these songs. And then they would they put their own thing on it, and then they said they wrote it. And that's where the trouble started, you know. You know, like the, the message, uh, not the message, I'm sorry. Um, um, white lines? What, yeah, white lines. You know, and they got sued. No, it wasn't white lines. It was, let me see. Uh, uh dope. Rapper's Delight? Rapper's Delight. Yeah. Um, well, they got sued big time because of that. You know? Because um, of Sheik. Yeah. Yeah, Sheik was, you know, now Rogers waited until they, you know, that record became like a big hit all over, all over the world. And then uh, sued them, which froze up their, their assets for a while until, until uh, the uh, court case was through. And he got like a ton of money, and rightfully so. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna steal something from somebody, you know you want to you, you know if you steal ideas or concept. Okay, there's a way of doing it without like. You know, like you blatantly just ripped off the song. Yeah. It was the whole bass track. Yeah. And then the drum parts were a little different because I'm playing it, but everybody, if Sujir Boop, you knew who it was. Yep. Well, I was a DJ, so it mixed nicely with the good times. So, you know, I was okay with it. But business, business is business, you know. Like, uh, like uh, Ray Parker, who did uh, uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah. And he got sued. Jimmy you know, Lewis. Him. Right. And everybody knew that, you know, when you listen to the baseball. That's I want a new drug. But yet, you know, and here's a guy who's smart enough to know. And he did. And I mean, they see the pants off of it. So how did you, uh, you know, so Mudbone was telling you, hey, if you want to play with these fusion and jazz cats, you should go for it. How did you actually start to, uh, you know, rub elbows with them and actually get involved with those guys? You know, guys like um, Mike Stern and Randy Brecker and Stanley Clark and so on. Well, a lot of guys at that time, they were waiting for me to leave the band anyway. You know, like, um, Prince was trying to get them to do some things with him uh, back in the days. And he and I could see eye to eye because of the way he, uh, the way he was back then. You know, you couldn't look at him in the eye, and you couldn't do this, and you couldn't do that. And we're like, well, yes, because God put on his pants just like I do. You know, <clears throat> and you know, if he's talking to me, I'm going to look at him, and I want him to look at me. You know, none of that, you know, looking down like you're ashamed and all that stuff, or, or he think he was so cute that you couldn't look at him. I don't know what that was about, but um, I remember at the uh, how come I can't remember that place uh, back when we did. Uh, Ah, any other time I would remember the name of that place, uh, it was uh, it was in California. I can't remember the name of the place. And we just came off stage, and again back in them days, we were using real lights. So 
um, we couldn't wait for the mothership to come down to cool off the stage because sometimes the stage would, the temperatures would be in the summertime, especially the, the stage would be like 110 degrees on the stage. It's so hot. Wow. And when the mothership came down, shooting all that CO2 out, it would, it would cool off the stage for, for a minute. And which caused me to sweat, you know, like crazy because my drum riser was so high. I was up there near in the lights. I'm up there playing, losing weight, and then I would come down. My drum tech would help me down because I was so wet that he was afraid I may slip off the steps. And then I'm walking back towards the dressing room. Santa Monica City. That's the name of that place. Yeah, I saw the Parliament show there in night, uh, the Glory Hall Stupid tour there. Yeah. Is that, those, the sh- is that the show you're talking about? Yeah, it was one of those nights. That was, okay. Towards, uh, dressing room. And it was one of those nights where it was Prince, The Time, Apollonia. Uh, Vanity Six then, yeah. And Vanity, uh, um, The Gap Band, Chick Career, Stanley Clark. Uh, Chester Thompson, Phil Collins was at that show. And in the house was uh, some of the Jacksons. Michael Jackson, Jackson was there. Uh, he had supposedly had one of his brothers out. I can't remember which one. But I think it was uh, the guitar player. I think it was in right now. And Sly Stone was there. And Larry Graham was there. So that night when all this went down, and I, I'm walking back towards the stage, and we just... We tore the roof off that sucker that night, and it was a great performance. As I'm walking, and we were warned not to, you know, Prince and area, don't look at him, don't talk to him, blah, 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 blah. So I'm walking up towards him, and I go to my, I see him walking in his path. He said, I'm going out. So I go to my left, he goes to his, he goes out to where I am. And I'm talking to somebody, I think it was Lodge Carey, I think it was. But I'm not sure. But or clip, and I walk to my right. He walks to it, you know, in my path. And as I'm walking up to him, I just walk around and I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. He had this look like, how dare I walk around him and not say anything, you know? And I go to the dressing room area, or I'm in the dressing room drying off, and somebody come in and says, "A prince wants to talk to you." I'm like, well, you know, let him in. He says, no, no, he don't want to come in. He didn't want to come out. Okay, so I go out. And he's like, you know, asking me, how come I didn't say anything to him? I'm like, well, we were warned not to say anything to you. In fact, I'm not even supposed to be looking at you according to what they're saying, you know. And then that went on to a few things. And then, you know, um, um, and I said to him, at the bottom line of everything he was talking about, whatever that was, that mumbo jumbo bullcrap he was talking about. And I said to him, like, at that time, I was like, look, man, all I know is when I when I look at my check, it's got George Clinton's name on it. It don't have your name on it. So if George Clinton is not tripping, why should you? And after that, man, it was like, it was like uh, there was a ripple between us. Well, what year about are we talking? That was in, I think that was like uh, 80. Yeah, so he was not yet even a superstar yet. He was still rising. Yeah. yeah. He was tripping, you know, like 80, 81. He was tripping already. He was, uh, you know, I think he was still trying to figure out himself and find himself and, and confused about himself at that time because, you know, he was very shy also. And he would allow other people to talk for him. Uh, and, you know, when he's out, you know, uh, around people uh, that want to do interviews or whatever have you, you know, and uh, if, you, if you go back and look at some of those videos, he wouldn't say much. No. I saw both the Parliament show in early 80 at the Civic and in later 1980, I saw Prince's show there, too. But so I think well I think he eventually you know changed his ways but later in life well yeah yeah later in life he did I mean because yeah. I remember he was I mean 
there was this camaraderie between him and, and Rick James. And it made Rick James kind of stepped up his game, even when Prince came on the scene. A lot of people don't know, like, when Rick James came on the scene, or before he became Rick James as we, as he, as a lot of people know him, he actually auditioned for Carmen Fontella. <laughs> well, I know very early on he did some stuff with Neil Young, and then later, I guess he he tried to get with P Funk, right? And then and um, and I remember, you know, he was saying stuff like, "But that's all right, you know. One of these days, going to be open for me." That's what he said to George. And he almost, yeah, well, he was that big where we could have, but it didn't happen. I don't recall. Uh, while I was there, I don't recall ever opening for him. But he was huge. Uh, uh, it became the thing I didn't like about him was the fact that I mean the guy was funky as it was all get out, but he just had no respect for the audience. Mm. You, Any time you know you walk out, the first thing you hear is cussing out the audience. Mm. I didn't like that, you know. But then that was me, you know. That's uh, his the punk funk. As they called it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like how you end up, you know, doing, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh my god, you know. So, so you you left, and the first thing you went to after P Funk was the John Schofield band. Is that right? No, no, no. I was with. Uh, I was with uh, Shitty Hill Gang for a while, and then I left that, and then I joined a band called Special Effects. Uh, Kelly Minucci and those guys. And, uh, and then, uh, oh, wait a minute. I was still with Funkadelic, or George Clinton, those guys, doing uh, the recordings that we worked with the Sugar Hill Gang. And also, I was at the tail end of Funkadelic when I joined Special Effects, because I, I remember doing some gigs. Like, we went to, we did Rock Palace, and we also played on Saturday Night Live. When I was still working with, or I was working with uh, uh, special effects, and after Saturday Night Live, we did Rock Palace. That's what it was with the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And this mm -hmm. is before Chad Smith had joined the band. And this drummer, we played with this group called Captain Beefheart. Mm -hmm. He's in the band, and he sounded great. I thought, and it was my first experience working with them, seeing how they worked, and I thought they were crazy. They got fleas jumping up and running all over the stage. And, and That's when they just wore like body paint and socks on their. On yeah, their yeah. <laughs> I remember at the end of the show, their way of like ending the show is mooning people. But they were getting this. They would get the you know one two guys or three guys no two guys would get on their knees to the audience, and the other guys come you know come and try to climb up on their backs. But the visual is like, as I'm looking at this, I'm going, oh, no, they're not going to do what I thought. Oh, my God, no, no, no. But they, you know, they climbed up on the other guy's back, and then the other guy, I think Anthony, was on top. You know, and that's how they made the show. And I remember you know, like being in some airports, and, and people were like flocking to the airports to see him as we were making this little tour uh, that they ended up canceling. And I don't know why they canceled it. They canceled the tour. But we got some dates out of it. And uh, but the Red Hot Chili Peppers kept on going uh, on the tour. We were for some reason we called off the tour. Um, and then I found out they were big fans of Funky I didn't know that either. You know, mm -hmm. um, they loved George and they loved Gary and they loved the band. And uh, so I was working with special effects. And then from special effects, I ended up with John Schofield. And how that started was Gary Granger was playing with Schofield at the time of baseball. He was from this area, from the Baltimore, Washington area. And we never played in a band together before, although we had played in a lot of jam sessions that led up, you know, to that before. And we knew that we could we could play together, you know, and make things work. Because he had, he had ears, you know, the size of any room. Okay? And he was very percussive himself on the bass with the thumb thing. Um, 
the sound was was so crystal clear. Sometimes I didn't know who was playing drums, whether it was him or me. And uh, so he uh, just came back from Japan, and uh, they were in San Francisco. We were staying at the same hotel. Come downstairs and do something get some information on where the some restaurant was. And it was our night off. And I think it was their night off too. And uh, no, 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 it wasn't our night off. We played that night. And um, we're looking at each other like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Yeah. Well, I just came from Japan and that that's scary. I'm like, well, we're, I'm playing with the, the uh, special effects at the Great American Music Hall. And I'm like, if you want to come, I'll leave you some, you know, leave you pass some tickets and some passes. He said, yeah, man, then leave, some, leave me a couple of tickets and a couple of passes, and I'll come to the show. I'm like, bet, you know, like, uh, but then he brought John Schofield to the gig. And um, after the show was over, John came to me and he says, what do you feel, how would you feel doing a, a recording with us? Because he knew he was going to go in the studio and do some recording. He didn't know what it was going to be uh, and who the instrumentation was other than Gary and him. And him. Um, so we went to the studio and recorded Blue Matter. And, uh, and Hiram Bullock was on. I don't even know Hiram. You know Hiram? Yeah, guitar player. Yeah, he was on that record. And George Duke was on the record. And we had... Uh, the keyboard player in the band at that time was Rob Aries. No, no, I take it back. I think it was Mitch Foreman. And the original guy was supposed to be Kenny Kirkland. He used to play keyboards in the band, but he never made the verse. So Mitch Foreman was flown in at the last minute the day of the show. And he sight-read the whole show and did a great job at it, as I recall. I couldn't believe somebody could leave like that. And play the gig perfect, yeah. and he was keyboard player. And uh, uh, he went in, like I said, did the recording. They flew the stuff out to George. George played some things on it, you know, because George and, and, and uh, John Schofield played together with you know various bands, such as one of the great band of Billy Cobbins, great the George Duke Billy Cobbins band, and so. George played on it, and that's how he discovered me. And then he found out I was with Funkadelic, and then he was like blown away because he's a big fan of funk. You know, that's how the Dookie Stick and all that stuff came out. Who's a big fan of funk? George, uh, George Duke. George Duke, yeah. Yeah, that's how he, you know, he did those records like Reach For It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff because he was a big fan of funk, and he loved George Clinton. And, um, he found out I was with, I was a part of that band. He immediately looking for me. And then he realized, I mean, you know, because he remembered seeing the show at the, uh, I can't the name of the place again, San Monica City. And he was standing off the side of the stage with Chester and this guy looking at me like, this guy's from another planet, you know. And the blues was so strong. And I remember the Gap Band, when we played that night, the Gap Band was running around. Robert, the bass player, he was running around and he's throwing stuff at me. He hit me in my back. You know, every time I look down, get off the back of the stage, I'm looking at him and he's like, you know, standing there shaking his head, his hand in his head like this and like shaking it like this is the greatest thing he ever, ever saw. And then he'll run around and look at Skeet and he's looking at him like in disbelief, <laughs> you know. I mean, we were on it, like, I mean, we were definitely on it. Like. Um, what about that Don Blackman record? Do you remember anything about that? Because that was a funky as heck record, too. <laughs> I remember a lot about that. In fact, I got some other takes of it somewhere. Where <laughs> Don, Don would, like, he would... You would change the lyrics of the song, you know, like uh, as a joke, you know, and and we would bust out laughing, or and or you know, I had to do a pass, uh, uh, overtake, 
you know, on, on some things. And I remember doing it and I, I'm looking at the control room like, guys, you got that? And they're looking up at the screen. I'm like, what the heck are they doing in there? I'm like, guys, did you get it? And they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's what I hear back. And I walk in, they were sitting there watching porno. <laughs> They're watching porno as I'm, I'm pouring my soul into this track, you know, like trying to get it. I'm like, guys, no, come on now. Did you really get it? And they go like, yeah, well, we think we did. Well, let's, let's listen back. And y'all like, turn the freaking screen off. They turn it off and now we're back into the track and they're like, oh, yeah, we definitely got it, you know. Or they would play, uh, I don't know if you heard this guy named, uh, uh, oh, uh, Oh man, what's that guy's name? He changed people's lyrics up. Hold on, I'll tell you exactly who this guy is. Uh, singer or rapper? Uh, he was a singer and, and rapper as well. Blowfly? Blowfly, yep. Yeah. So they were sitting in the studio listening to Blowfly while we were trying to record some of that stuff. And some of the stuff was so funny. I never heard of him until then. And some of the stuff was so funny where we couldn't even track that day. We were so busy laughing at some of the stuff that, that we heard. Oh, man. We had a great it time. Sounds, it sounds like you had a great time on that one. Yeah. We had a great time recording that record. Wow. A great time. You know. So what would you say are some of the uh, things you're most proud of in the jazz fusion area, you know, some projects that you just really feel are benchmarks for you. I was working with John, John Schofield, John McLaughlin, especially. Uh, I never dreamt in a million years I would be working with him uh, because I, I, I learned a lot by listening to the Mahavishnu play. Uh, still learning, and and I ended up working with him and, and becoming like a brother to each other. You know, his birthday is on, on uh, January fourth, and I call him every year. If I don't do anything else, I make sure I call him every year on his birthday. It's happy birthday to him. And uh, well, he's as you you've played with so many uh, fusion guitar players and 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 Stern and Khan and Schofield and McLaughlin and. You seem to really mesh well, especially with the guitar players. Yeah, I mean, because I, they, they, uh, one thing about me is like they realize what I try to teach the clinics uh, and talk about at clinics is that look, man, when you walk into the studio, it's not about you, although it's, it's about you as far as like making this work. But for me, it's like when I walk into the studio, it's not about me, it's about us. And what I mean by that is, you know, like when we play these songs, how do we make this work? How do we make this feel good? How are we going to make this come across? And the key word is we. It ain't me. You know, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the equations of it. But I got to play well with that bass player. And no matter who he is and how great he is, I got to, you know, like find some kind of way to, that, to make that feel good. And the same thing with the bass player. You know, like when you work with Anthony Jackson, uh, Anthony Jackson had things before you even get there, which kind of, you know, kind of surprised me sometimes. You know, working with him. Uh, you know, I'm doing like a, you know, do this drum fill, and I'm getting ready to hit the, the one on the end of one, and he already heard it. He's on it. I'm looking over at it, I'm like, how did he know? But, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, when they hire you, but when they hire me, they know and I, they know I got chops and I got these facilities. They know, you know, I got you know capabilities of playing grooves, and they trust me enough to know that I'm not going to come in there and like, turn it into a chop fest, unless it's one of those kind of records, you know. Uh, and they know that I'm capable of doing that, you know. But uh, but but the main important thing is, while I'm doing that, how how it comes across, and how comfortable it is. I remember, you know, some friends of mine who are drummers, and they were like, man, you're the, one of the only guys I've ever heard that can make odd time. Mike Stern said this, too. He says, you're the, one of the only guys I've ever heard that can take, play odd time signatures. 
and it don't even feel like it's that hard time to me. So 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 smooth with it. Yeah. Like, you know, seven to me is like playing four four. Nineteen to me is like playing four four. And if it if it feels if it feels that way to me, then it's gonna come across like that. But with these young guys, you know, like they come in and they got shots, you know, they're like, oh, I'm so good, mm, I'm great. Mm. And then, you know, they're the ones get fired off the gigs, you know. Well, one, of, one, of the, one of the projects I think that you really get to show your chops in uh, is the niacin stuff. Yeah. Can you still see me? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, the niacin stuff, uh, at the beginning, uh, that stuff was... It was it was it was a little weird for me because I felt like the writing was written for for the writers who wrote it just to blow over. And then uh, when organic and also time crunch when that came out, the guys was like writing stuff, you know, as a band, you know, to make you know to, uh, uh, to have their own identity. And I think that was like the the uh, the, the best two records, maybe three records. I can't remember what the other one was before that. But definitely Organic and Tonkin was, was two. But I felt like the band was becoming a band, you know, because the guy wasn't just writing for himself. He was writing for the unit. And I had a, I had a great time working with him, especially working with Billy, Billy Sheehan. Billy Sheehan, a lot of people don't know, but this guy, he should have been a comedian. I mean, I remember him telling me some stuff, man. And I remember one one incident where he told this story, and we were at this we were at a restaurant or, or something. Right? We were eating, and there was a mixture of people around the table. He told this thing, man. I got up, I was laughing so hard. I got up and and try to try to you know like. You know, just you know, just get away from the table because he, he's laughing, I'm laughing, and I couldn't breathe. And I, I went to hold myself up on this table, and I fell to my knees, and the room started getting dark. I almost passed out. I was laughing so hard. Yeah, right, he is something else. You know? <laughs> I'm so, glad I'm not that funny because you might throw up or fall out of your chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, not to tell jokes because you know. You know, it's like you won't get anything out of me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you played with Eric Leeds, so that kind of goes back to the Prince camp a little bit. Um, he was Prince's sax player. Um, how, how'd that come to be? Uh, the record company guy, and I can't think of his name right now. Leeds, Lee Pearson, I think his name was. Yeah, I think his name was Lee Pearson. He uh, asked me to do it, and he said that, that Eric wanted wanted me to to, to play Peter uh, recording. But I never got a call from uh, Eric. I, I mainly dealt with Lee Pearson. He was head of uh, Warner Brothers uh, A and R at Warner Brothers, I believe. And uh, and uh, on that recording, I remember it was uh, Richard T. Great Richard T. was at one year. And um, I forgot the bass player. Maybe the, maybe you remember that bass player he became famous. He played left-handed bass. He was a tall guy. He looked like a basketball player, and he died. Um, uh, he had sugar diabetes, so they. Oh yeah, um, is that Wayman Tisdale? Wayman Tisdale. Yeah. He was on that recording. Yeah. And. Um, so we're trying to figure out how to work this stuff out. And, uh, and uh, Eric, he didn't know who which T was. Because he, he, he kept saying, or he made a request for the piano player, the keyboard player, not to play so churchy. And he never called him by his name. Everybody knew it was the great Richard T, you know. So Eric didn't know. He was insulated in that Prince world too long. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember uh, looking over at the uh, piano room, and I could see charts coming down as when 
you know, you know, he would just throw the charts up in the air. And, you know, it's like, uh, he would just sit there, Richard T would sit there, look down at the piano. Because, you know, he felt like they, they, he's playing the right thing. He's, you know, he definitely knew how to read music, and he was only playing what was written. He played no more, no less than what was what was what was required required for him to do on that those records. And then yet he was he was being you know really pounded on by Eric. Thank you.